0: how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. An effective antiviral treatment for COVID-19 has been around since 1973. Tell me more. Welcome to Radio Cade. I'm your host, Richard Miles, and my guest today is Jean-Francois Rossignol, Chief Scientific Officer at Romark Laboratories and a professor at the University of Florida, and also a 2020 inductee of the Florida Inventors Hall of Fame. Congratulations welcome to the show, Dr. Rossignol. Thank you very much. I had the privilege of actually talking to you or recording this a few hours before you're being presented with your award, which was delayed by COVID. So is this an exciting evening for you, particularly since you've had to wait a, a little bit to get yeah, of
1: course it is. It's a great honor. And my specialty has been in a kind of world which is not always celebrated, okay? Because I began to invent and develop drugs for the third world. Because I was under the direction of the director of WHO, Dr. Halfdan Maler, who has been elected three terms, 15 years at WHO. He was a Danish guy and his assistant, Andrew Davis, was British. Alf Dan was uh, then, and these two men directed my entire life. They're all gone today, you know, the <laughs> both are dead. But Dr. Malaya was the man, for those of you who remembered who created the Alma-Ata Declaration. Mm-hmm. The Alma-Ata Declaration was a WHO United Nations meeting in one of the republics of the USSR, and where he said, we're going to bring health for the world in 2000. And of course, it did not happen. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> okay. So, so I was a tropical physician at the time where I met Dr. Malaire and through Dr. Davis. They were number one and number two, you know, in the organization. And these two guys were interested in the fact that I was a synthetic organic chemist and a physician, a young physician training in tropical diseases. So Dr. Malaya said to me, well, we don't have the drug we need for treating the third world. You're going to see that very easily. And could you please put your brain working on inventing drugs for specifically the developing country? And that's what happened in my life. And I spent my life between Africa, first, because I was trained as a tropical physician in Africa, and Southeast Asia a lot, and a little bit Latin America. So that's my background, if you want. You were talking about my background. So I spent my life there. In different, Africa? Diff- oh, yeah. Different uh, Africa, Asia, South America. Yeah, I did work in parasitology. The parasitic agents were, in the 1980s, essentially the new infection of the developing world. We estimated, for instance, that um, about 2 billion people, which was at that point in time one third of the world population, was infected by worm, okay, intestinal worm, including schistosomiasis, which I later eradicated in China. At that point in time, it was very widespread. Malaria was the killer. It is still. Yeah, it's still
0: a okay, killer it is still.
1: It is still. It did not change much, okay. which is telling you. That we have not done very much mm-hmm. you know, for the third world. So I started to work on giving the world a single dose drug very cheap for the treatment of intestinal parasite, and I had to, to really courtize the pharmaceutical industry to mm-hmm. get them to help me. And I was successful with most of them, I have to say. Laxos Miss Klein gave me a drug which was used for veterinary medicine, very, very widespread albendazole. And I went to see them and I said, well, can I develop your drug for human use? And the answer was immediately, oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Actually, we were thinking about doing it without you coming mm-hmm. to tell us. So I said, yes, I will do that. I'm a tropical physician in Africa at that time. I can do a clinical trial. I can do everything. So we developed albendazole, which was a single dose, inexpensive, medic very safe. Mm-hmm. Davis was a tropical physician, Malair was not as much as Davis and myself, the field doctor, you know, the tropical doctor, as we said in the UK. But Malair has been directing the WHO tuberculosis program in India for most of his time. Davis was saying to me, well, you know, the guys on the courtyard, you know, the village, you rally the entire population and you give them a pill for treating their problems, and you cannot have any side effects, any toxicity, or any kind of things like that. You have to have a safe drug, and that's what we did. The second thing is, we cannot repeat the treatment. The people will not take more than one dose. So we developed the concept with WHO, of the single-dose treatment of parasitic diseases, and we were successful for most of the disease, malaria, schistosomiasis intestinal and so on. So that was a great mm-hmm. era of really the World Health Organization where we had, instead of a diplomatic problem mm-hmm. like some opposition, at that point in time, Malaya was a den. The Scandinavians are very nice people. Mm-hmm. And really, he was a man of conciliation. He was a diplomat. Good with the Chinese and good with the Russian. At that time, it was the yeah, Russian sure. uh, communist We're regime. talking about the, the 70s and 80s?
0: 1980 okay. to sure.
1: 1990. He left WHO in 1988. So this is the idea where I put as Malheur said to me, you know, you're a chemist, physician, so now the best thing you can do in your life is really to invent drugs. And we were, I have to say, at that point in time, absolutely convinced that we would be saving the world. Mm-hmm. This is something which the people don't understand. I believe that in 1980, 1990, before the onset of AIDS and HIV, we believed that everything would be under control. And we were close to being. Okay? Mm-hmm. People will tell you that malaria, the intestinal elementasis, schistosomiasis and so on and so forth. Because we had the pharmaceutical industry collaborating with us. Mm-hmm. So Bayer, for instance, big German company, mm-hmm. Bayer worked on giving us the single dose on Telmantik for schistosomiasis Later on, on onchocercosis. Now, you have to understand that schistosomiasis Mayo... When I went to China for WHO to direct the eradication program, that was in the red book. Okay? Mayo has said, if we're not going to eradicate the schistosomas in China, China will not grow. So they had put together the program with Prazi Quantel, which is the discovery of Bayer. And that was very interesting. I could be able to talk hours about my first China because the guys knew very well who I was. And they said, but you're a chemist, so we're going to show you the chemical plant which is making this German drug. smith Klein had given Mm -hmm, us mm -hmm. a single dose of antelmetic for intestinal worms. That's probably the most used drug today in the world because I'm still receiving the letter from different people. And they say, I've given today 3 billion doses of albendazole in the year, okay? Malaria was a lot more difficult, but we made some significant advances with the U.S. Army, the Walter Reed mm-hmm. Army Institute mm-hmm. of Research in this country. That was the reliqua of the Vietnam War. It has been disbanded since that. Okay, the, the military were sent home. At that time, they were really working very hard in screening molecules, and I worked with them for one molecule. And finally, you have Merck with ivermectin. Mm-hmm. That was the hardest discussion I had with Merck. When I went to Rahway in New <laughs> Jersey and I said, well, we want to develop your drug for sarcasis, which is the River blindness." And at the beginning, Merck was very, very upset by that because they said it's not a safe drug and we don't want to have any problem. And I remember the second meeting, Andrew Davis came with me with his big authority and he said, don't worry about that. Raffignol has made only single dose drug. He will make a single dose drug of your drug. And they said, OK. And we did it. So it was an extraordinary life, I'm going to say, and extraordinary opportunities, and I have a lot of respect
0: for the people I worked. I was wondering if you could tell me, you've had this unique position of being able to see drug development from all sorts of different angles, and then different countries or different regions, France, Africa, the United States. In your opinion, is drug development working as good as it should or are there things systematically that governments should be doing differently or pharmaceutical companies should be doing differently? Let's compare it to the 80s and 90s. Is the process better now or is it worse than it was 30 years ago? It's a lot more complicated. The regulatory
1: process came on board, which was not existing in the 1980s. Your question is very easy to answer with Ms. Klein's. Ms. Klein asked me, as an organic chemist coming out from the Pasteur Institute and University of Paris with my PhD. And a physician who had finished, you know, my training and were doing the clinical specialization in tropical diseases. At that point in time, people said, do you know how to develop a drug? Well, the answer was no. No, I had absolutely no experience. But I was so excited about being in charge of developing Albandazor on a worldwide basis with the support of this wonderful company in Philadelphia with wonderful people. I remember when they, the night where they gave me my contract, there was everybody, the board of directors was there, and the chairman and everybody else. So I could not believe that a little guy like me, you know, was celebrated by these people. And this supported me for eight years, okay? it supported everything I was doing. I was going to Philadelphia about once a month, and I was giving my results. It was highly successful for the company, of course. Today, it's a lot more complicated, but it doesn't proceed by the same way. In the past, we would take, for instance, people who were doing tropical diseases. So the famous university professors, so I had people everywhere, tropical physicians, and I'm still playing with a lot of them around the world. So that was including Japan. They were tropical physicians, professor, of clinical parasitology. So they knew what they had to do. And we were able with WHO to unify the protocol. So that was the great thing, the WHO. And that was something WHO doesn't do anymore. Because i have said, in order to get to the Alma-Altar Declaration, health for everybody in 2000. We're going to have to work with the pharmaceutical industry. And they are not the enemy to destroy. Uh, No, and that was the part where WHO helped me considerably. Mm -hmm. Because when I was going there, everybody knew that they can say no and push me out of the door. And people did not do that, never, ever. They were very, very nice. So that's where I invented three drugs, okay? Mm -hmm. And the last one was the thiazolide. And thiazolide has been incredibly important because that was the bridge between the old world and the old world of malaria, WHO, you know, the third world, essentially, mm-hmm. the poor people, to the new world having some diseases of the third world, which is AIDS. Okay, mm-hmm. So we had a problem with cryptosporidiasis, which is an opportunistic infection in AIDS, which was killing people. The NIH could not find a drug. And I gave them that one day in Washington, D.C., and to Alexandra Fairfield, who was working in a, at the uh, NIH. And she called me and she said, oh, she, if she's listening to that, she will be, She's she's sure she's alive. She was a young, beautiful girl. And two weeks later, she said to me, Jean-François, we have the drug. It works. Okay. They tested in animals and that was done in Boston by a veterinarian. So that was a great adventure. Mm-hmm. And then we got the treatment. And today, Nidazoxonide uh, is still the only drug approved by FDA for treating opportunistic infection in AIDS. Okay. So, uh, that's the bridge to viral disease.
0: I see. Okay. Let's talk about that a little bit more. That's one of the things you're being recognized for for tonight. It's the invention of nutazoxonide. How did that start? What was the process leading up to that discovery? Because it was quite a while ago, 1973,
1: right? I finished my PhD, Mm -hmm. a doctorate degree in organic chemistry at La Sorbonne in Paris in 1971. And then I discovered that I was not going to stay in chemistry. So I went to medical school, and that was very obvious anyway. I was at the Pasteur Institute, I was at the Cure Institute, which is a cancer hospital of Pasteur. We were the kind of a chemist in the middle of nowhere. And so I went to see my director, and I said, I think I want to go to medical school. He said, it's about time. I was (laughs) expecting you to say that. So they organized it. But I had to stay for the first seven years. So you it's about really I will graduate with my MD degree in 88. So I stayed in the Cure Institute in the Department of Chemistry. And that's where the synthesis of nitroxenide occurred. And it was nothing at the beginning until it was rediscovered here in this country. By the people at Boston School of Veterinary Medicine, mm-hmm. where the famous story was Alexandra Fairfield, when she sent the sample to Boston, the guys used different tests, laboratory and animals, and they said, bango, we Thank have you. it.
0: And more recently, it's being also used to treat COVID as well, is that yeah. correct? Yeah, okay. it is used to treat
1: COVID. Yeah. Again, this is the same story. Yeah. The collaboration of universities, big institutions. And a few days ago, I think yesterday, Anne Goldfeld, a famous professor of microbiology at Harvard Immunology, posted on BioRx, which is the new place, a phenomenal study showing that it is is probably the best option we have for COVID. And this is done by a bunch of universities Mm -hmm. in the Northeast, okay? We are probably about 25 or 30 authors. It represents most of the Northeast universities, okay? And they showed that it's phenomenal and it's going to make a huge noise because of Mm -hmm. her credibility. So she's now publishing the paper somewhere. It's going to go to Nature or Science or some major paper. And then my first clinical trial in the United States, which has been done in about 200 cases, I had to recruit about more than 1,000 cases, is now accepted for publication by the Lancet papers. There is a lot of confusion with this COVID, you know, in the world, right. I can tell you. Okay, it's and not only in the United States, it's in the world.
0: And so what is the next step with this as, as a treatment for COVID? I imagine it still has to get FDA clearance for use against COVID, even though it already has it as an antiviral.
1: Well, the FDA has a problem with giving the temporary use utilization mm-hmm. because at the beginning, they were very quick to give that. To give that to chloroquine, for instance. There is a controversy today about ivermectin. Mm-hmm turn out to be absolutely a fraud. So you cannot blame FDA to be a little cautious today. So they are following our research. They were very pleased by the work done in Harvard by Han Goldfeld, Professor mm-hmm. Goldfeld, and the team, because that's showing clearly that it is working the way where we need a treatment for COVID. So we're going to do more clinical trials, mm-hmm. and then eventually the drug will be approved. There is a thing I should not say, but I'm going to say it. If the doctors want to prescribe Alinia, which is the name, it's available. It's available in this country because it was registered for cryptosporidiosis. Uh-huh. It's not like it's this drug is not available, this is repurposing. Uh-huh. But repurposing its a very confusing state in which we are with COVID. Right. And, uh, and we did not have the leadership that we had in the 80s and 90s. Okay. So we don't have that. So the people who are talking sometimes don't have
0: the expertise. They are for publicity or for something like that. And it doesn't help. So forgive my ignorance about how antivirals work, but could this potentially be a game changer? And would it address or potentially cover all variants of the coronavirus? Or yeah. would it only be effective against this? Yeah, this
1: virus? is what we did discover. And that was done by essentially two teams, one in Italy at University of Rome and one in Harvard University. They looked at the drug which was working against all mutants. So we have the five mutants, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Omega are the five mutants, and it works equally. Because the problem with everything which is done, including the vaccine, is that the vaccine doesn't work against the Omega mutant. And we are terrified, public health people in the world, very concerned about the fact that we may have to more and mutants, mm-hmm. more pathogenic than the Omega and as transmittable as it is. They say, what are we going to do? And then you've a problem, which is the confusion of the population. You may have seen Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the UK. He said, people don't do whatever they want. There is no more mask obligation. There is no more vaccination. There is no more anything like that. And guess what? After two or three months, it doesn't show much difference with a country like France, mm-hmm. where the situation is still under the control of the government, mm-hmm. saying you need to be vaccinated, you need to wear the mask, you need to do all kinds of things. So it's very confusing, right. this virus, okay?
0: Well, I think that's one thing probably everyone can agree upon is that it's confusing, <laughs> it yeah, no yeah, matter yeah. what, what your view on anything confusing. else is. It's
1: terribly confusing. I don't blame anyone to For, be confused, to be argumentative about right. some of the measure. There is a, too much politics taking care yes, of that yes. as well. You know, We lost 5 million people, according to WHO, between 10 and 15 million real, and it's not over. Yeah. No pandemic in my life right. has been killing a, that many
0: people. Right. Dr. Ross, I'd love to hear about your background. Usually all of our guests on the show, I I ask them, tell me a little bit about their beginnings, even back to childhood. Where did you grow up? I know you're from France, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about your childhood. And then in particular, when did you first know that maybe you wanted to go into chemistry or go into research? Was that as a young child or much later in your academic career?
1: My family is a family of physicians for generations. So my grandfather was a surgeon, mostly in tropical countries. My uncle was a pneumologist. And so on. So I've been uh, raised in the middle of physicians and the discussion around the table were always about health. And sometimes I was terrified <laughs> by that, OK, because they were coming out and I said, oh, my God. And then what happened? I went to chemistry because I was a lazy <laughs> so that, that's I don't hear okay that cool. very often. And
0: I was lazy. I was not good enough to get to physics. How old were you at this time when you weren't very good at chemistry? Was this as a young child? 1962. Okay.
1: 1962. So I was what? I was 19 years old.
0: 19, okay.
1: I had passed the preliminary examination to get to the University of Paris, oh. which is the pre-science or whatever. You have to do a year to prepare yourself oh. after your high school degree. And the problem is at that point in time, chemistry was easy and physics or mathematics were not, and medicine was, I didn't even know about it. So I went to chemistry. My family did nothing. They said nothing. Because in in 1965, I was just not even finished my undergraduate degree. I was hired by the Cure Institute to pursue my chemistry work, and that was cancer and hospital. So I was back there. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, 1965, I remember going to the director who was a friend of my family, Professor Latarget, and I said to Latarger, I said, Monsieur, I don't want to continue chemistry. And he said, you're going to continue chemistry, you're going to pass your doctorate degree, and then I will take care of you in medicine, but you will do all of that. So results of that 17 years at the University of Paris, undergraduate and two degree in graduate, okay? So that's what happened. But as soon as I reached April 1965, the Curie Institute, I was already in my mind thinking about only one thing, becoming a physician. Really? I was horrified by what I was doing. think about the Cancer Institute in 1965.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about where are
1: you from in France? I'm born in Lyon, okay. uh, which is the southeast of France. My parents were originally from Paris. have decided to go during the war in Lyon because it was on the free zone. And my father thought that it would be easier to leave. And I think it was. There was more freedom and more accessibility to essential things such as food. So I born there. But very quickly after the war, my parents went back to Paris. So I grew up in Paris and I went to the University of Paris. And I left Paris in 1992 to go to the third world and I spent most of my time, and I ended up in this country. And you live
0: now where in the United States? I live in
1: Florida because I love Florida. Okay, good, Florida. I came in Florida, (laughs) and I discovered that it was a paradise. I went to the country like Africa or Asia where it's not surviving. Mm -hmm. The weather, the climate is horrible. We have no comfort, no running water. So after a few years, either you die, essentially, or you say, I cannot take it anymore. But if you do, you are acclimatize to live in tropical disease and with a lot of heat, with a lot of things sometimes. And that's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. So now I believe that Florida is cold.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Even in the summer. In the summer. So one last question. I'd be committing podcaster malpractice if I didn't ask you about skiing and your connection to skiing. Most people have seen your name on their skis. Is there a family connection there? And, and yeah, so yeah
1: absolutely. This was my great-great-grandfather. Your great-great-grandfather. Yeah. The story was that he was from Burgundy. This mm-hmm. is where my family is originally, talking about 1850. My great-great-grandfather was named Jean-Baptiste. And Jean-Baptiste was in you know, the wine business originally. And then he was drafted to go to war, the 1870 mm-hmm. war. Okay, the first with the, war we with had in Germany. Germany. Yeah. At that point in time, he wrote five years and he was a prisoner of war and that was not as terrible as it would become later. Mm-hmm. So he escaped finally one day, he said, hey, I'm going <laughs> home. And when he came back, he did not find anything. The country, the France in 71, was absolutely devastated at the end of the second empire in Napoleon mm-hmm. III, it was chaos. So he walked down from Bonn to a city near Grenoble without job and they were poor and they were walking down and they discovered this uh, brother found a girl whose father was a carpenter. Uh-huh. And that's the beginning of the skiers, you oh, know. They went to work uh-huh. and they saw the mountain. They said, yeah, there is mountain there. We would like to try to ski. And the father-in-law, said, okay, if you want to make yourself skis, and so that's what they did, and that's the beginning of the company. At the turn of the century, 71, becoming something famous in 1900. Right,
0: right. That's a great story. So invention runs in the family. Yeah, yeah. Inventing things. Yeah, it looks like, (laughs) it looks like, absolutely. Dr. Rastner, thank you very much for coming on Radio K today, and again, congratulations on the award that that you're about to receive tonight, and I hope maybe we can have you back at some point. Thank you very much. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles is the podcast host, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.